It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for you in the chair in front of you. I'm going to be, uh, we're in this series called uh, the Vision Series, or kind of looking at the vision of our church. And uh, we are in the second week. And this morning, uh, we are going to look at the subject of gospel-centered preaching. We're going to be looking at three different texts this morning, and I will tell you what they are before we get there. Uh, we're starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And before we jump in, I want to, um, I want to borrow a phrase or borrow a parable from one of my favorite preachers. A church inscribed the words of 1 Corinthians one twenty three on the outside of their church building. We preach Christ crucified. And over time, ivy grew up the wall of that building and obscured the last word of that phrase. And now the inscription read, we preach Christ. More time passed. The ivy continued to grow, and without anyone really noticing, the ivy hid the next to last word in that inscription. And now those who passed by that old church read simply this, we preach. What began as one congregation's commitment to preaching the good news of Jesus Christ became obscured and unchecked weeds grew up. And around that building, weeds left unchecked and untrimmed eventually go unnoticed. In an effort to become relevant, up-to-date, attractive to the world, a church is tempted to leave behind the less culturally acceptable parts of the Bible. They'll still preach, but it won't be Christ and it won't be the cross. And tragically, without Christ and Christ crucified, the church is emptied of her power. Today, we celebrate five years as a church. March 15th, 2015, 2015, this church met for the first time. And the Lord has been incredibly kind to us in the last five years. People have come to faith, we've been baptized, been received into membership. We've all grown in maturity in some ways. Some of us, like me, have grown in maturity in a lot of ways. And the Lord has been patient with us all. As we have tried to learn from His Word what His church is, what church membership is, what it means to follow Jesus in a community, what to do in the middle of a pandemic. We're still learning, and the Lord is still showing himself kind and patient. Our commitment at the beginning of this church was to gospel-centered preaching, to going verse by verse, book by book through the Bible. Five years in, today we renew that commitment. Gospel-centered preaching will continue to be of primary importance at Cornerstone Piqua. So I have two goals this morning. I want to first show from Scripture that gospel-centered preaching 
by which I mean the kind of preaching that centers on God's plan of redemption through the person and work of Jesus Christ is indispensable to the faithfulness and fruitfulness of this church. The gospel-centered preaching is essential to our faithfulness and fruitfulness and relevance in this city. Especially when there are fears of disease, financial instability. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have nothing to offer the world in times of peace or in times of crisis. My second goal is to convince the members of Cornerstone Piqua to be resolute in their commitment to accumulating for themselves teachers who faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this message is mostly for the members of Cornerstone Piqua. Because if my understanding of the New Testament is right, then members are held accountable to God for the Christian witness, the gospel witness of a local church. And so I would like to say at the very beginning, I want to say many thanks to our tech team, who in a situation like we're in, and and many of our members are unable to be here today. They're capturing this on video, and, and it's going to go out very soon to them, and they'll be able to watch this and be edified and built up in it. So I just want to say thank you to our tech team for ongoing faithfulness. So this message is mostly for the membership. So, but if you're a Christian, you're here, you're not a member of our church, uh, this has something to say to you too for when you are or already are or someday will be uh, stepping into the privilege that God has given you as a, as, a, as a Christian to join yourself to a local gospel preaching church and to carry out your responsibilities to make sure that that church is holding out for the local area that it's in. That this is the gospel of Jesus Christ and this is what it means and this is what it looks like to be a, a faithful Christian. If you're not a Christian and you're just visiting with us, I'm glad to see that you're here. But you, can, you, can, you can see this is what church is about, and this is what's most important to us. So I'll draw three points from three different texts as we work through this message today. The first is coming from 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll read here in a second, that the gospel is our message. The second point is coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, that the gospel is our method. And the third point I'll make this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and following, where we'll see that the gospel is our mandate. So let's, let's get to work. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to read the first four verses and then pray, and then we'll, we'll get to work. It should be around 30 minutes or so. 1 Corinthians 15, this is the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, to the beauties of Jesus, and make true what we sang just a moment ago, that He is our sure and steady anchor. We will not be moved. Amen. Paul says the gospel is a matter of first importance. 
Verse 1 and 2 gives us features of the gospel. Verse 3 and 4 define the gospel. In verse 1, we see that the gospel, whatever it is, is preached. So therefore, it is a message. In fact, the word gospel, many of you know, simply means good news. It is good news that changes the state of the person who hears the good news. So think of it like a prisoner hearing the good news that his king has defeated his enemy and now he is free. Think of it like a man hearing the good news that his debt has been paid. Think think of it like good news that an orphan receives when she hears that she has been adopted. It's good news that changes the state of the person who hears. That's what the gospel is. It's good news. Good news for sinners like us that changes everything. Well, verse 1 says the gospel must be received. Someone brings the gospel to someone else and they receive that gospel. They understand that gospel and they believe that gospel. It also says that the gospel is a foundation, Paul says, in which you stand. So the gospel is the substructure upon which the Christian life rests. When difficult rains come and flood comes and wind beat against us, when there's a pandemic and a financial crisis, the gospel is the rock-solid foundation on which we stand. Verse 2 says the gospel is good news that saves. Paul writes, by which you are being saved. I don't want to get overly technical, but the verb tense in this phrase, it's important. That's one word by which you're being saved in the original language in Greek. It's a present passive indicative verb. The present tense means that God is the one acting presently, that our salvation is happening now. God is presently saving us. We are being saved. It is in the passive voice because God is the one doing the saving. We are the one being saved. It is indicative because it it is true of all who believe in Jesus Christ. Those who believe in Jesus are being saved. So what is this gospel? We've seen some of the features. What is this gospel? What is this message of good news that so changes those who hear? Verse 3 and 4, define it. It is Christ who died for our sins, Christ who was buried, and Christ who was raised. The gospel is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And why is that such good news? Because the biggest problem for mankind is that God is holy. Because we aren't. And God is a just and good God who will not sweep our sins under the rug as if they never happened. To do so would mean that he would not be just. And so how does he, a good God of love, a holy God, justify sinners? Answer, the gospel. 
sinless Jesus stood in our place as sinners. And he suffered the penalty of our sins on the cross. And his death atoned for our transgressions. The Bible says the penalty of sin is death. And so Jesus died. And his dead body was laid in a tomb. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that his offering for sin was acceptable to God. And all who have faith in Jesus Christ are fully, completely, and in every way forgiven. Holy and absolutely forever righteous. Because of the gospel... God would have been just in punishing sin. And he would be, become the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that we as sinners who come to the holy God, our sin has been paid for. So he remains just, but he also becomes the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He is holy. And hell-deserving sinners like us are made right with Him through the gospel. And that is good news. That is good news that changes everything. And it is good news that demands a response. You'll notice at the end of verse 2, the saving effects of the gospel in your life are only effective if you believe. You must turn from your sins to believe in Jesus Christ. This is the message that we Christians hold out to the world, calling all sinners to turn from their sins, to trust in Christ, and to receive the free gift of salvation and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is our message. The gospel is our message. But the gospel is not just our message. The gospel is also our method. The gospel is also our method. And to see this, I'd like to direct your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. They'll be back a few pages. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, turn to page 952. Look for the big two at the bottom right-hand corner. That's where we'll be reading from. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. The Apostle Paul, writing to this church at Corinth, says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The book of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote a large part of the New Testament. He's the one speaking in this passage, and he wrote this letter to a church that was in a bad way. There was disunity in the church. People were fighting over all kinds of things. 
Some of their members were taking other members to court, suing them. They were screwing up communion, messing up the spiritual gifts. Ethically, they were all over the place. Some people were having sex with anything that walked. Some people were banning sex outright. Some dude's hooking up with his stepmom. Whole church is going, yeah, man, love is love, you know, live your truth, live your best life. And so to this 70 car pileup of a church, the Apostle Paul writes, when I came to you, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul believed that the gospel was the solution to the Corinthians many problems. So rather than psychologizing them, rather than going, taking a deep dive into their past and providing all of the reasons why they are behaving as they are, slipping into some pre-Freudian Oedipus complex about why this homeboy has got issues with his mom and so now he's sleeping with his stepmom. Paul doesn't go into any of that. Paul goes to the cross. You got division in your church, Corinth? Look to the gospel. Jesus was made nothing for you in order to give you everything. You confused about sex and marriage? Look to the gospel. Jesus Christ died and was raised to give you new life. A life that has greater purpose than just sexual fulfillment. The spiritual gifts, they won't prove of your spiritual acumen, Corinth. Look to Jesus He used his gifts to serve others, to build them up at the cost of his own life. The Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus gave us his body and shed for us his blood. And likewise, we lay down our lives for one another and set aside our preferences for one another. Over and over, Paul is calling the Corinthian church back to the gospel. Because the gospel was the message and the gospel was the method. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the great purifier of the church. Remember in chapter 15, it is the means by which we are being saved. The gospel is the power of God that unites us to Christ. And it is the power of God that keeps us there. Paul goes on in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and fear. So he didn't come yelling and screaming and pushing his weight around. He says in verse 4, my speech and my message, they weren't implausible words of wisdom. I didn't want you to have your faith in me or in my wisdom or the wisdom of any man for that matter. Verse 5 says, I wanted your faith to rest in the power of God, in the gospel. There is a freedom to the simplicity of this method. It means that everyone can grow in Christ-likeness simply by looking to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone, every Christian can find mental and spiritual health at the gospel, through the gospel. So whatever the conflict is in your life, the gospel is your solution. Whatever fears you have in your life, be it pandemic or pestilence or financial ruin, be it a mean boss at work, The gospel is your hope. The gospel is your solution. Train yourself to run to the gospel, Cornerstone. 
Suppose you're tired of giving second chances to someone. Because it seems to you, by your math, they're on their seventh or eighth second chance. I get it. It's tiring to me too. But train your tired heart to run to the gospel. So you're wondering, where should I draw the line with them? Maybe you should ask yourself, where would you like Jesus to draw the line with you? How many second chances do you suppose you're on? Do you think Jesus knew what he was getting into when he went to the cross for you? And yet, 1 John chapter 2 says that every time you repent of your sin, Jesus remains your advocate with the Father, appealing to his own blood for your forgiveness. So don't think in heaven, Jesus is telling his Father, I don't know, Lord, I've given that boy ten times. I just don't think he's ever going to change. No, The Son of God keeps pointing to His own shed blood, reminding His Father, your justice fell on me. He is free. And the Father is happy to forgive. With such a Savior, with Jesus on your side, go be an advocate for that friend who needs another second chance. Be an advocate 70 times, seven times. Well, suppose you don't feel like doing what you should. You know you should pray. You know you should read the Bible. You know you should lead your family in family worship. You know you should initiate with your wife in studying Scripture. But you don't feel like it. Take that unfeeling heart to Jesus. And meet Him at the Garden of Gethsemane. And hear him through fully human lips pleading with his father to take this cup from me. And see that on his shoulders, his father was literally laying the weight of the entire world. Do you think Jesus knew what it's like to have to do hard things? He didn't feel like it. And hear the Savior say, to the great benefit of all, To the great benefit of us all. Nevertheless, Father, not my will be done, but yours. When Jesus didn't feel like bearing the weight of your sin, he submitted to the will of his Father and did it anyway. For the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. So bring your your unfeeling heart to Jesus and see his glorious obedience to his Father which was to your great benefit. And pick up your Bible and read and pray and lead your family in worship and initiate with your wife. Suppose you're reading the news, scrolling through all of the posts on Facebook and Twitter this week, hearing what's coming out of Italy, and you're scared. Understandably so. Look to the gospel, dear friend. Jesus gave his life on the cross and died and was raised from the dead. And he, by this, united you to himself. And your life, the real life, is hidden with Christ 
in God. And he is with you always, even to the end of the age. There's nothing to fear. If sickness takes your life, you'll be with Jesus. And if sickness passes you by, Jesus will be with you. Either way, you get Jesus, you're safe. God is your refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So whatever the trouble is, the gospel is a solution. We preach Christ crucified to the world. We preach Christ crucified to one another. And we preach Christ crucified, most importantly, to ourselves. The gospel is our message. The gospel is our method. And finally, the gospel is our mandate. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. using a church Bible, that's page 996. 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's begin reading at verse 16 in through, verse, in through chapter 4 for a little bit. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Two things I'd like to draw out of this passage as we prepare to close. First, gospel-centered preaching is the mandate of every pastor. And second, gospel-centered preaching is the demand of the faithful. Gospel-centered preaching is the mandate of the pastor and the demand of the faithful. So this letter, 2 Timothy, is probably the last letter the Apostle Paul wrote before he was killed for following Jesus. And he wrote this letter to a young pastor named Timothy. These are some of the Apostles' last words. And so we get a good sense of what's on the old Apostle's mind as he's nearing the end of his life. In chapter 3, verse 16, we see that he tells young pastor Timothy that Scripture, the Bible, is God's Word. It is breathed out by Him, that God, who is the giver of life, has always created life through His words. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth by speaking. God breathed into dust and formed it into a man. God's Word gives life. This is why the Apostle Peter said to Jesus, isn't it? When all of those people were leaving him in John chapter 6, he said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
God has always led his people by his word. Enoch prophesied. Noah was a herald of righteousness. Abraham spoke God's promises. Moses was a minister of God's word. The judges, some kings, the prophets heralded God's word. And Mark 1.14 says that when Jesus began his ministry, he began proclaiming the gospel of God. When the Holy Spirit came and fell on those 120 in the upper room at Pentecost, what was the first thing that they started doing? Telling of the wonders of God. Peter stood up in a crowd and guess what he did? Preached. Acts, the book of Acts is full of preaching. Christians understood that the Bible is primary because, look at verse 16 a little bit closer, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything we need that pertains to life and godliness is found in God's word. We believe the Bible contains everything we need. To know how to honor the Lord in every situation we encounter in this life. When when, when what we should do is not explicitly stated in Scripture, it can be deduced from Scripture. And so we come to the old apostle's powerful charge to young pastor Timothy in chapter 4. He says, in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, the great judge of all, preach the word. Paul's parting words to Timothy. Boy, you got to preach. That is what the church needs most. They need gospel-centered preaching. That's what our church needs most. Not to hear my opinions, my thoughts, what's important to me. You need to hear God speak. So he says, preach. In season, out of season. You preach when it's popular. You preach when it's not popular. When people want to hear what you're saying, when nobody want to hear what you're saying, you preach. So gospel-centered preaching is the mandate of the pastorate. And as a pastor, I fail at many things. And I am likely to fail in a lot of ways that I lead this church. By God's grace... As much as I am able, I will not fail in preaching the Bible. Week in and week out, as long as our Lord allows, I will climb into this pulpit and I will tell you it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible. And we will read and we will learn. But it's not only my mandate. It is our mandate. I want you to notice the warning that Paul gives in verses 3 and 4. There are some some responsibilities upon the members of a church to ensure that what is being taught from the pulpit is God's word. Gospel-centered preaching is not just a mandate of the pastor. It is the demand of the faithful. In Cornerstone... We must demand gospel-centered preaching from the teachers in this church. Have you noticed how many of the epistles open up like this? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the pastors and deacons. 
Paul's instructions being written to a church. Many of the letters in the New Testament are written to churches. The expectation must have been that the congregation had some responsibility for what was being preached and how it was being walked out. Do you remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17? How they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so? Just please be aware, Cornerstone. There are dangers creeping up and around our church to accumulate teachers for ourselves that suit our passions and tickle our ears. Our ears are itching to hear feel-good, do-good messages that minimize sin, that minimize cross-bearing, that minimize suffering, and that maximize self, and that maximize prosperity. And if we're not careful, these weeds, they will go unnoticed. And unless we're careful, they will obscure the sign on the outside of our church that tells our community, we preach Christ crucified. So gospel-centered preaching will remain primary commitment of this church if we are to be fruitful, faithful, and relevant in Piqua. We must make this our commitment. And we must demand gospel-centered preaching from this pulpit. We must submit ourselves to it, and we must submit our lives to it until Christ is all and in all. Amen? Please stand to your feet for the prayer of confession. At the end of our services, we take a moment, we go before the Lord, and we, we pray a prayer of confession. We ask Him to forgive us of our sins. And so if you would, join with me as we pray um, another time. Father, You are great. Your name is great. Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You have illuminated our way this morning. Thank You. We confess that we have not made the gospel first important in our life. We, we admit that we have looked for refuge and strength in something other than you. We've done it this week as we've been scrolling through our news feeds, feeling anxiety worked up in us, being dismissive of what we see and read. We admit we have not found our strength and refuge in Jesus. We ask you to forgive us. We admit that we have not considered the gospel our solution. We turned to other things looking to solve our problems. And so we ask that you would grant us, your people, a fresh understanding of the gospel today. Help us to renew our commitment to making it first in our lives and in our church. Grant us faithfulness as we witness this gospel to this community until Christ becomes all and in all. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, your assurance of pardon this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2, where we read this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for our sins only, but also for the sins.
the whole world.